Second Peter chapter 1, verse 12 to chapter 2, verse 3. I will not be negligent. I worked on that word, by the way. That's hard to say. Negligent. To remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off this tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased." And he heard this, and we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, chapter 2. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will, will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words, for a long time their judgment has been idle has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber let's pray together father thank you so much for your word there's so much here thank you for how wealthy we are in part because of your word we pray lord that we would increasingly have an appetite for it we know lord that you use it to make us more like you and we want to be more like you so we pray lord now as we study it we pray lord that you would speak to us We pray that we would hear from you. We pray that you would change us. We pray that, Lord, that you would make us uh, more like a disciple of yours. Help us to grow in maturity. We thank you for this privilege to be able to be changed by you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, Peter continues with this great letter encouraging these suffering believers as i mentioned last week they are they are still dealing with the persecution uh, to which paul or peter rather uh, spoke in the last book in first peter so they're still dealing with that persecution or that trial or tribulation from without but not only that in addition to that as if that wasn't weren't enough they also have to deal with now inward issues, uh, kind of attacks from within related to apostasy and, and false doctrine, false teaching that was starting to take root among them. And so last week as we, we began the book in Second uh, Peter, we began to see Peter vividly describe part of their inheritance. And we saw two very 
precious things that were is, those believers had, had to realize that they were recipients of and also us as well today. And the first thing that we saw was that we've received his divine power, which provides us all with everything that we need related to life and godliness. We saw that. But not only that, we also have received precious promises. We've been given precious promises through which we get to partake in his uh, divine nature, or another way of saying it, to partake in his character. So those are two things that we saw last week that we've been given. Those things have been given to us, past tense. So we've been given everything that we need to live godly lives, which removes any potential excuses that we may have or want to have because of our upbringing or because of things that we had to suffer through growing up or whatever leanings I may have towards a certain type of sin or whatever it is. None of us are at a disadvantage ultimately because the Lord has the, the, the uh, corresponding power and grace to make us uh, to where we can live a life that's pleasing to him. And so it takes away all of that. It takes away all of the, uh, you know, so-and-so has it better than me, and so God's limited in terms of how he can help me live a pleasing life. It also tells us that, which I didn't mention last week, is that the early church weren't at a disadvantage. Sometimes today we, with all the psychology and all these things that get introduced, unfortunately, into uh, Christian conversations and teachings, we can start to think that, well, we've learned so much about human behavior that we're, in a, we're at an advantage, with, and now we can live more of a godly life because of all the things we've discovered and so forth, and we have it way better than the early church. That's not what this verse teaches. That verse does not teach that. The early church had the Spirit. There's a reason why God came at, in, the, in Jesus at a certain time, in the fullness of time, to, without all the technology, to say that God plus nothing is enough. God plus one is enough. I mean, God plus nobody is a majority, as it's been said. And so we're not at a disadvantage, or the early church was not at a disadvantage, and we're not at a disadvantage at all in, what, in anything that we've had to deal with, any struggles that we've had. God's power is sufficient to free us and to give us the, 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 the ability to live a life that's pleasing to him as an expression of our worship. And so I don't buy into some of the things that you hear out there that, you know, the early church was at a disadvantage and now we're more advanced and, you know, all these things. I mean, it's the same relationship with God. It's the same Bible. It's the same Holy Spirit. It's the same promises. It's the same power that God gives us to, and grace to be able to live uh, godly lives. But then we saw Peter say we we're supposed to add something to our faith and multiple things. He said virtue and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and sacrificial agape love that because I have already this precious faith because we have that God says continue to grow continue to add or to remember lavishly furnish our faith by adding those things to those things and we were told last week he said if we abound in those things and and if those things are ours then we make our calling and election sure that it'll reinforce to us and be a comfort to us that we're in the truth, that we really are on our way to heaven and all these things. We're supposed to believe those things because God's word says those things. So I'm not taking away from that. But I'm just saying as we live in a godly life and as we live an obedient life and God produces fruit through our lives, 
It's just a comfort to us that we are living how God's called us to live. And, and he knows that that's a blessing to us. So that's what he told us. And we saw that very clearly last week. Now this week, he's going to focus on three things. And this, these verses kind of divide up like this. First of all, he's going to deal with the importance of being reminded the word of God. Number two, he's going to talk about the validity of Jesus' glory and his word. In other words, everything that, that Jesus fulfilled and everything that he is, was and is and all of those things, those things are valid and his word is valid. And then lastly, he's going to begin to focus on false prophets. And we'll see as we continue through chapter 2 and a little bit into chapter 3, he's going to really focus a lot on false prophets. Prophet, So it's very important for us as well. So he begins in verse 12. He says, For this reason I will not be negligent. Said it right again, just for the record. Just want to be, you know, get that credit. But not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. So he begins with, for this reason. What reason? You just got done speaking about their need to make their call and election sure. Because of that, he says, I will not be negligent to remind you. Now, it's a strong word, the word that I can barely say, negligent. It's a strong word. It means that he, if he wasn't reminding them, it wouldn't be that he's just not helping them or aiding them or giving them something that would be beneficial. It would, it's, when you're negligent of something, you've done something wrong. You've done something bad, right? So that's what he's saying. He's saying, I, I'm not going to be negligent because I always want to remind you. And he says that word remind or a version of it three times in the next three verses. He, he wants us to never forget uh, the things that we're supposed to know. And notice he says they know and are established in these things. That's interesting. How many times that, you know, we fall kind of in this trap where we have to always learn something new. It always has to be new. And that's a trap. I remember when I was uh, overseeing the school of ministry, discipling future leaders, pastors, and so forth. In the, te- in the preaching class, I know that's God's sense of humor that I would be teaching a preaching class, okay? But he has a, it does have a sense of humor. Uh, I would say avoid it. Avoid the temptation to think that you have to bring something new that no one's ever heard before. Because if no one's ever heard it before, there's a, probably a reason for that. It's probably not there. And it's a trap that teachers can get into. I have to bring up some novel thing, some like, whoa, wow, I never heard that before. That is a trap because God has made clear to teachers, especially leaders that are called to teach. He he told them through Paul, preach the word. Preach the word. Just teach what it says. Just proclaim what it says. You remember when we went through the book of James that we saw that he, by the Spirit, compared us looking into God's word with us looking into a mirror. And as I said then, it's a brilliant uh, analogy there. Because um, just like a mirror, God's word assesses my current condition. A mirror does, when I look into it, if I looked in the mirror today, I can't remember if I did or not. (laughs) Uh, But when you look in the mirror at any given day, it's not showing you a reflection of how you were last week. It's not showing you what you looked like six months ago, five years ago, ten years ago. It's telling you how you look right then. And that's why it's beautiful for us to see that God's word is like a mirror because at any given moment, it's assessing my current condition. And and that's very important because I need to know what my current condition is. See, we do this funny thing in our minds where we kind of assess our spiritual development by what we know. And that's not 
how God sees it. He doesn't see it that way. He, he cares about what we know. He, we're supposed to grow in the knowledge of, of Christ. But it goes way beyond that. Because God looks at, when he assesses our spiritual condition, he looks at fruit. And he looks at our obedience. Because at any given moment, when I hear a teaching about something, yeah, I could, I, I could have been doing that or obeying that the last time I heard it. So now I'm hearing it and going, well, this isn't new. But God's saying, are you doing it? Hello? Are you obeying it? And that's the deception. Well, because we think, oh, I already know it. But yeah, we're not doing it. We know we're supposed to love our wives as Christ loved the church. I know that. So when I hear a teaching on that, am I looking for some deep, deep truth about something that I'm going to learn that I've never... No, I just need to think about, did I take the garbage out? <laughs> you know, did I, did I care for her needs? Did I put, my, put her first before my own needs? That's, that's how we're properly assessing ourselves related to God's word. You remember Jesus said, he said, I will liken or compare a man who obeys God's word to a man who builds his house upon a rock. He said, it's not just hearing. He said, if a man hears my words and does not obey my, my uh, voice or my, my commands, then he like, he's like a man who builds his house on the sand. And so it's not just hearing only. Remember, James said, don't be deceived, thinking that you, you can just hear only God's word. You have to obey God's word. So we forget God's word. I mean, we really, literally forget. Oh, wow, I totally forgot that. I mean, like, there really is three in the Trinity. Oh, cool. I, I totally forgot that. You know, I mean, maybe not that significantly, okay. But you forget stuff. Wow. So we do need to be reminded. But again, most of the time it has to do with, am I currently obeying? You ever listen to a, to a sermon or a teaching and you're thinking, man, I wish so-and-so was here to hear that. You might as well just say yes, because you know you've done, we've all done that. Oh, I wish so-and-so could hear this teaching right now. What's that? What, what are we doing? And I'm not that we can never think of someone else when we're hearing teaching, but we need to think of it, or am I doing it? Am I thinking about what I'm doing at the moment? And so when we hear a teaching, when we see God's word, when we read God's word, we need to be asking the question, how can, not is, do I know this already? And I've had to remind myself of this so many times. It's just, it's just the way we are programmed in our culture. We just need to think, am I obeying? How can I obey this better? How can I obey this better? Where, where, how does it sit with me, with my life? What are ways that I can uh, take this to heart and, and obey this in a better way? I remember so many times in pastor's conferences, Pastor Chuck would get up there. And if you listen to his MP3s, back then it was tapes. He may have had uh, eight tracks. Who knows? He's been around. He was around a while. Uh, a little dinosaur pedaling on it. No, that's the Flintstones. I wasn't that far back. But, um, you know, when you're listening to his teachings and you think, man, I've heard this, Pastor Chuck. I've heard this so many times. You feel like you could finish the teaching. And, and you know, it's not an exact replica or, or you couldn't exactly do it. But you know this general thought process. And, you, and even at pastor's conferences, so many of the men there have taught through it many, many times. They've heard Pastor Chuck teach for decades, some of them, you know, and he doesn't treat it any differently. And I just love that. It, you wouldn't know that he was at a pastor's conference. He's just teaching that passage as if you've never heard it before. And it's, it's beautiful because you, we forget those things and we also are not currently obeying those things. And I just, I just love it. I just love the fact that God does that. He repeats things. That's one of the benefits of going through the scriptures verse by verse and going through it all the way through. 
Because you get the content and the proportion in which God revealed it. So you're not majoring on things that God doesn't major on or minor on things that God's majoring on. You get it in the proportion that he revealed it. There's a reason why he revealed it the way he revealed it. Every jot, every tittle, every part of every verse is not by accident. So when we go through Paul's letters, I'm going to explain the significance of his greeting of grace and peace to you. You're like, man, this is the ninth time we've heard you explain that. Well, he inspired God's word like that. And all scripture is given by inspiration of God. All of it. So we need to go over it and over it and have those things go deep into our hearts. And so I have no problem repeating things because God has no problem repeating things. Verse 13. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. So first of all, he says, as long as I'm in this tent. Notice he uses the word tent. What are tents? Tents are temporary dwellings. I'm not a big camper. When I go, I've gone camping and I'm not a happy camper. It's, I'm working towards it. I'm, go, I'm making progress, I'm hoping. Uh, but when, you're, when you set up a tent, it's not something that is usually supposed to be for a permanent uh, arrangement. And, he's, and it's a good reminder for us that our bodies are just tents. It's not the true us. Our spirit is the true us. And so one day we're going to lay down this tent and God's going to give us a new body someday. And so we need to recognize it. It's, it's temporary. We spend a lot of money fixing up these tents. <laughs> Old Testament calls them carcasses. That maybe that might bring us some perspective. Our carcass. You're fixing up your carcass. You know, it said the children of Israel, their carcasses fell in the desert. You know, so maybe that might help us related to seeing, you know, taking these things too seriously. I mean, we need to be good stewards and everything, but I think it's a healthy reminder. But he says, as long as I'm in this tent, I'm going to stir you up. Notice the word stir. That's the word we get our word exhortation to stir up. And that's why one of the reasons, like I said, that we are supposed to be reminded of things because it stirs us up. It, it shows us, hey, you're not currently doing this. And so God says, you know, this is the, these are the changes that you, may, you need to make. And then he says, shortly I must put off this tent. I mentioned this last week. He has this sense, and we don't know how he knows this. That God directly showed him, or he just sees circumstances, I don't know. But he senses that his time is coming to the end. And he he is saying, I know it's, it's happening, it's going to happen, it's coming soon, I must put off this tent. And then he says, just as the Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Now, I mentioned this last week, but I actually want to read it this week in John 21. Jesus said this to Peter, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. And then We know that John, the apostle, added in John 21, in verse 19, this he spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God. So history records that he was crucified upside down. And God's grace was extended to Peter and letting him know, yes, you denied me three times, but I'm I'm restoring you, and you're going to be faithful to me all the way to the end, until you're an old man, and you're going to die for me. And that that was... very specific grace that Peter needed related to his restoration. So that's, I'm sure, what he means at the end of verse 14, just as the Lord Jesus, Lord, uh, Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. So we're not told specifically what Peter was, what he did to ensure that. 
Some people say this letter, and that's true because, I mean, it extends, I mean, think about it, 2,000 years, almost 2,000 years, we, God's people have had these truths from Peter to remind God's people of these things. But they, he's speaking something in addition to this letter because they already had this letter. He's saying, after I go away, I'm going to do some very specific things. And it's likely that Peter uh, made sure that they were set up with good, solid teachers that would help. You know, that would, that would be the first, my first guess related to how Peter would be able to ensure that they'd be reminded of these things, that he would make sure that they had solid leaders that'd be faithful to teach them the word of God. Now, Peter gets to the validity of the Lord Jesus's glory and his word in verses 16 through 21, this section. He says, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we were, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So first of all, this word fables, the, the word, our word myth, it's mythos. And so he says that we weren't, what we communicated to you was not some made up story. This world thinks that, that somehow back then those disciples, they made up this great story of the resurrection and, and all these things when they didn't get anything in return. They didn't get wealth. They didn't get riches. They didn't get influence. They got martyred. They got beaten. There was no motivation for them to lie. No one dies for something they know to be a lie, as it's, as it's been said. So here they are, and, and, and they're, 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 he's saying, we didn't, you did not follow these, you didn't follow fables. We made no to you something that we knew of, that we, had, we saw with our eyes, this power and this coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What is he talking about with his majesty? He's talking about when he was transfigured. He's going to get into that. There was a point in which that they saw the Lord Jesus transfigured before them. So he says in verse 17, For he received, that is Jesus, from God the Father, honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well, I am well pleased. And he heard this voice which came from heaven and we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So they're on this mountain, and it is noteworthy that he calls it the holy mountain. Sinai is not the holy mountain anymore. That's, that, was, that was the old wineskins. God was doing a new thing. Now his son, the fulfillment of all of that, came. And, and the Lord Jesus was transfigured on that mountain. And we're told what Peter leaves a little bit of detail out here because Mark tells us that they were sleeping and they were awakened and that uh, Mark mentions that Peter didn't know what to say. I can't relate to that. Can you? Didn't know what to say, so you just say something. You know, he said, it is good that we are here. Let's make tabernacles for you and Moses and Elijah. And that provoked an interruption from God the Father himself saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, hear him. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, maybe I shouldn't have said anything. The other disciples, yeah, you should have kept your mouth shut even though you didn't know what to say. You know, you've heard that saying, if you can't say anything good, don't say anything at all. Especially when the Lord Jesus is there and Moses is there and Elijah's there. You know, you need to be careful what you say. Uh, in fairness to Peter, though, he's the one that likely gave Mark most of his information. So that's probably where Mark got it. But here they are, they're on this mountain, and, and they see Jesus transfigured. And 
that, you know, you remember in Romans chapter 12 when it says to be transformed by the renewing of your mind? That's the same word that's used to describe the transfiguration. And it means a metamorphosis. That's the word. Metamorphosis. And it's a transformation from the inside out. That's very relevant related to understanding what Romans 12 is saying. From the inside out. Those things that change, I mean, I unfortunately think of the Incredible Hulk. I need to turn that aside and think of like a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. You know, that's more probably better in many ways. But you, you have this caterpillar and it, and it changes, it transforms, and it changes from the inside out. Nothing on the outside is making that thing change from one thing to another. Just like in our Christian life, when we're transformed by the renewing of our mind, nothing from without is making that change. It's happening through the Spirit. And he's changing us from the inside out. So it's the same word. So the Lord Jesus is on that mountain, and he's transfigured, he's transformed from the inside out and revealing his glory. And I don't believe it's his full, full glory because Peter, they're not in their new bodies, they couldn't handle that. And so, but I do believe that it was, you know, obviously a, a very significant um, re- revelation of, of, of his glory. So they're there. And so what, what is Peter bringing all this up? He's, he's saying that we were eyewitnesses to something related to Jesus' glory. And he does say uh, his coming related to the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he came that first time. He's going to come a second time. A lot of these false teachers that we're going to look at in a, in a little bit here, they were attacking the whole doctrine of the second coming and, and, and Jesus coming in his glory. So glory is related, coming is related to these things. And, and so he says, we were there, we saw it, we, we witnessed it. These aren't just things we made up. We actually saw it with our eyes. And it was only Peter, James, and John that saw that. But the, the, the disciples did see that transfiguration there. And so this would be incredibly encouraging to these Christians because... Again, they're suffering. Remember, they're, they're suffering. They're going through hardship. And he's saying, all these, the thing, what you're holding out for and being, getting a new body and going to heaven and, and being delivered from this world, the, re, the, 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 the reason why we can know that's going to happen is because of who Jesus is and what he accomplished. We know that happened because we saw it. We saw it with our own eyes. But what's interesting is that he goes deeper than that. Notice in verse 19, he speaks of this better confirmation or this better foundation than even experience he says and so we have the prophetic word confirmed which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts now the new king james or rather the king james the old king jimmy uh that uses the, this phrase, the more sure word of prophecy. The more sure word of prophecy. Because the word confirmed there, you have to look at the original, it means to be stable or firm. So what it's saying is, we have the prophetic word as a surer foundation. Peter is saying, it's great that we saw all that we saw, that we were eyewitnesses. But see, what's interesting is that God knew most people wouldn't have that luxury to see with their eyes. Jesus even said we're more blessed if we don't see. So he knew that, right? So here we have Peter knowing that, saying we saw it with our eyes. We saw his glory. We witnessed everything. But we realize that you that are suffering right now, you didn't see. And he's saying, but you don't need to have seen. You have something that's even more sure 
or, or something that is, has a sure foundation, as wonderful as our personal experience was, it's still the foundation is the prophetic word of, of the messianic scriptures that painted a portrait in the Old Testament that showed that Jesus, when he came, that we would know who he was. Because if all of that happened on that mount, the Mount of Transfiguration, and Jesus didn't line up with those scriptures, Peter and others, and us as well, would have to reject that. Because the foundation is God's word. If Jesus was betrayed for 29 pieces of silver, we'd reject the Jesus. Every single one of those prophecies had to be perfectly fulfilled. And nobody could fulfill those. If Jesus didn't, nobody can. It's impossible. And, and even the, the, there was a prophecy related to the very day he'd have his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. To the day in, in Daniel chapter 9. You can study that out and blow your mind. It's just amazing. So he's saying, we have something very, very strong. You have something very, very secure, firm, a strong foundation. It's God's prophetic word. And he says in the middle of verse 19, which you do well to heed. Because see, that scripture, those prophetic scriptures are a light that shines in a dark place. This world's a dark place. Seems like it's getting darker and darker and darker all the time. Those prophetic scriptures are a light and those are an encouragement to us. It, it further comforts us related to our inheritance and who we are in Christ and so forth. Did you know those prophetic scriptures are not just for us to realize that Jesus is the Messiah? Those prophetic scriptures are also for us to enjoy our Messiah. You further appreciate him more when you see all that he is in the Old Testament. Not just all that he is in the New Testament, that's amazing, but also all that he is in the Old Testament. He's, he's been revealed in a very significant way. We know from Isaiah that there is nothing about his physical appearance that's becoming. We wouldn't know that in the New Testament. Nothing is said about his appearance and if he was uh, you know, appealing to us in, in, in his appearance or not. But we see that from the Old Testament. So there's, it's not just to know that Jesus is the Messiah. It's to appreciate even more how he's the Messiah by looking at the Old Testament scriptures, because every experience has to be validated by the word of God. Remember the disciples on the road to Emmaus subsequent to the resurrection? The Lord Jesus did not rebuke those disciples because they didn't believe what the women had said. He rebuked them because they didn't believe all that the scriptures had said about the Messiah. It was God's word. It was the more sure word of prophecy that they hadn't believed that got the rebuke and got the exhortation there. And so it anchors our faith. And so that's something that we have to stand on. Now he continues in verse 20. He says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So what is this private interpretation? What does it mean? Well, let's talk about what it doesn't mean. First of all, you have churches like the Roman Catholic Church that say man can't interpret the Bible themselves. They need to go through that through the priest to be able to understand God's word. And for many years, and up until like I think the 60s, maybe the early 70s, all the masses were done in Latin. I mean, there's no they didn't care if they understood or not. That wasn't the point because they didn't have the capacity to interpret Scripture. So it doesn't mean that. It also doesn't mean that anyone can have their own meaning. Well, I can just have my private interpretation. You know, and so that, that it's not saying that at all. It's saying that 
this, this capacity that man has inspired by the Lord is to understand what God's heart is and what he wants to communicate. And God gives man the, communi- the, the capacity to be inspired by the Spirit. And that's really what we're looking at here in verse um, uh, 21 is talking about inspiration. So interpretation means to loose, to untie something. Man doesn't have the capacity by himself, apart from the Lord, to untie or to loose truth about God. He can only do it as God inspires him. And that's what he says in verse 21. He says, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So man can't do it. He has to be inspired by God. And in 2 Timothy 3.16 says that, that all Scripture has been given by inspiration of God. So God in, breathes. It means God breathed. God breathes into man and gives them the capacity to write his word when he inspired them to do that. And they spoke as they were moved by the Spirit. And the word moved is the word they would describe when wind would fill the sails of a ship and take a ship a certain direction. So they have to be inspired. Like you could say the winds inspired those sails to take that ship across the, the, the sea or whatever. That You could word it that way. So we, we, they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now it begins a section related to false prophets. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1, he says, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift dis- destruction. So he says there were also false prophets. Notice the word also. He's talking about the Old Testament still. Talking about prophets and prophecies. He says, just like there will be pro- false prophets among you, there were old, they were, because I'm saying it backwards now to, 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 to show the origin of it. He, he's saying that there's nothing new going on among you. There's false prophets among you. That's not new. That happened in the Old Testament, too. That's why he says also there. And he says there will be prophets, or false teachers, rather, among you. Notice the word among you. Among, in our midst. Pretending to be Christians. There'll be false teachers, false uh, uh, leaders, and so forth, who will secretly bring in destructive, and the word destructive means damning. That's what it means. It means damning heresies. And, and one of the things I see there is the word secretly, and that's the really important word in verse 1. Secretly. Nobody usually says... <laughs> Hello, I'm a false teacher. I'm a false prophet. I believe I'm going to tell you a bunch of lies and rip you off uh, financially, usually, and, and also, more importantly, spiritually. So put, your, put up your guard. They don't, they don't do that. They're, they're secret. They're, they, they want to do things quietly where you don't understand what they're doing. They take advantage of people who are ignorant. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 Verse 4 tells us this. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. And then he says in verse 13 of the same, 13 through 15 of the same chapter, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ, and no wonder... For Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. 
Therefore, it is no great thing that his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. How do you know if there's a wolf in sheep's clothing? They're not eating grass like sheep do. They're eating sheep. That's, that's, that's how you know that a false that a wolf and you see so you have to look and see how they're treating sheep. And if they're devouring sheep, they're a wolf in sheep's clothing. He says, Jesus said they're ravenous wolves. What's a, when you're ravenous, you're starving. You're, you just can't wait to eat something. That's how, they, that's how they operate. They're secret. They're subtle. And they come in and they do horrible, horrible damage. He continues, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. They deny the Lord. They deny his death. You know, the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus didn't die on a cross. They believe he died on a torture stake with his hands above his head. And, and that's denying the cross. They don't believe that you know, they're wrong with who he is. They, they deny that he's even God in human flesh. They believe he's Michael the archangel, a created being. You know, they believe when he rose from the dead, he rose spiritually and rise physically. It's all denying the Lord. But that's, we would may, might say that's an extreme situation or extreme teaching that we would recognize. But there's very subtle false teaching out there that picks apart who Jesus is and makes him into something that he's not. And, and, and that's what we have to be careful of. We don't, we don't want to follow someone that's denying the Lord. And, and, we, and he looks at, he says their end is very specific at the end at the end of the verse he says and bring on themselves swift destruction false teaching is destructive it's very destructive sometimes unfortunately we joke about false teaching or false teachers and that's it's not real funny to god because he loves the people that are being hurt by them we we, we wouldn't joke about child abuse why because we love kids when we joke about false teaching, we joke about those things, and we don't take it seriously, we're not, we don't, we're not walking in God's heart. He cares about every single person who's in that, that ward, that, that Mormon church, or that kingdom hall, or, or whatever other you know, belief system that's out there. He cares about every single one of them. He died for them on the cross. And, and so it's, it's, it's supposed to produce a sobriety in us. We should be grieved when we hear about false teachers and false teaching. And it, and, it, and it speaks to us that we need to really know our Bible so we don't get fooled. Because just as I read in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, they don't look like false teachers. They're not wearing a name badge. Hi, I'm Chuck. I'm a false teacher. They come in and they're secret about it. They, let, they wear the suits. You know, they, they know the words. You know, it's been said that they use the same words but a different dictionary. Because they pour different meaning into those words. They say, the Mormons believe, say they believe in Jesus Christ. The Jehovah's Witnesses, Jehovah's Witnesses say they believe in Christ. But who's Christ? Because you know, the Mormon Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer, who had a better plan for salvation. So God the Father, who's an exalted man, went with his plan. Now, you wouldn't know that from their nice little commercials. You're not going to know that. It's, it's, it's subtle. It's secretive. And they, they, they fool people. And, it's, and it's, it's serious. So we need to know what the Scripture says. We need to know how to test things. Everything that people say, we need to test it to God's Word. Myself included. Don't give any person that much liberty to where you can just believe what they say and not test it by Scripture. 
Acts 17.11, the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they tested what Paul said. The Apostle Paul. They tested what the Apostle Paul said to see if what he was saying was true. And he was, they were commended for it. Paul wasn't threatened. Any teacher that says, oh, you can't test me. I'm, I'm so-and-so. I'm Apostle so-and-so. Or I've been in ministry this many years or whatever. Excuse me, I've got to get on my, my jet. <laughs> I'll be back. You know, I mean, it just seems like that's how it is. I mean, and you know, when you, when you talk, especially sometimes we talk about politicians, say, don't listen to what they say. Watch what they do. And you watch what people that claim to be these great teachers and so forth, watch what they do because they are getting wealthy. They're ripping people off. They're, they literally are flying around in, in multi-million dollar jets. And they are fleecing God's people. And there's a huge warning here. They're going to receive swift destruction. About a couple years ago, there was a church that wanted permission from us, as if we have permission, you know, could give permission. They wanted permission from us to use, to use our stuff on Saturdays. And then leave it all set up, which would be very tempting, especially you set up crew. be very tempting. It's all set up, and then we would tear it down. And, and they were said they were a Christian church, and, and okay, well, let's, let's look into it. And I started getting into what they believed and so forth, and they're a cult. And, and what I said to that pastor was some people might think would be a little bit harsh. And I didn't do, I wasn't rude, but I warned him. I warned him that he's a false teacher. And he needs to repent. And I told him why I believed he was a false teacher. Now that, I wasn't doing it to make myself feel good or I'm Mr. So-and-so that has the truth or whatever. I felt, I felt like it was the most loving thing I could do to warn him. And he completely rejected me. And was just, I mean, I couldn't be rejected anymore than how that guy rejected me. But it's serious to God. False teaching is serious. It does damage. How many parents don't have kids today because they were told by some wacky teacher that it was uh, a, not standing in faith to bring their kids to a doctor or to the hospital when they were sick? That those were lying symptoms of the devil and they need to stand firm in faith and now their kids are gone. It does damage. And, and so we need to take it seriously. Whenever we know somebody that's engaged in false teaching or is listening to false teachers, don't be afraid to be bold and say, that guy's not teaching the truth. That person's not teaching. You need to test what they say because they'll never look like uh, the false teachers that they are. They'll always masquerade themselves as workers of righteousness as, as we saw in that passage. Now notice there aren't a few who fall for false teaching in verse 2. It says, and many, notice the word many, many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. So many people will fall prey. There's probably 20 or 30, 35 million Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons in the world. I mean, that's not even talking about all the other crazy stuff that's out there. Many people will fall for their destructive ways. And then he says, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. How many times have you as a Christian been sharing with someone, a neighbor, someone at work, that you're a Christian, and you end up you know, explaining what you're not? You know, I mean, I'm, I'm not with those guys on TV that fleece people, and you know, I'm not I'm this and that. And, you know, because, they, they, because of their, their uh, behavior and what they've taught, they've actually done damage to the name of Christ. And so that's what they've done. They've, they've, because of these people, the way of truth has been blasphemed. Now he gets to their motivation in verse 3 of false teachers. He says, By covetousness, 
they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. What is covetousness? It's an ungodly desire for more. It's something that God has said that I, I shouldn't have and I want it anyway. It's, it's, it's ungodly. And he says that's their motivation. That's why they have the jets. That's why they have the mansions that are parsonages. <laughs> it's like 30,000 square feet parsonage. Give me a break. I can't even believe that the IRS lets that happen. I, I predict it's going to stop uh, for many reasons, but especially that. But he says they will exploit you. That, that word is to make merchandise of you. Remember when the Lord Jesus cleared out the temple a couple times, he said, uh, you made my father's house a house of merchandise. It's the same word there. And so it, it's the word we get our word emporium from. It, it, they're going to rip you off. They're going to take your money. They're going to exploit you. And, and that's false teachers and unhealthy people that are serving have a self-focus. It's all about them, what they get out of it. Someone that's truly called isn't doing what they're doing for, for selfish motivation to get anything out of it. They're doing it because they love God and they love God's people. They want to obey the calling that's on their life. But, but false teachers, they're serving themselves. And you, they're not going to just say that. They're going to tone it down, but then they're going to live extravagantly. And, and not all of them are like that. Some of them don't mind being you know, without things to... to, to uh, spread their false teaching but most of them it's because they're trying to get something out of out of you now this last word this last part of the verse when it says and their destruction does not slumber their judgment is not idle he's saying if that judgment is coming you can count on it don't think that they're going to get away with this sometimes we think that i mean there's no stopping the mormon church or jehovah's witnesses or all these other belief systems, there's no stopping it. It seems like they're never going to be held into account. They are going to be held into account. And this imagery, their destruction does not slumber. It's like a picture of an, an executioner who's not going to fall asleep on the job. He's going to do the job that he is supposed to do, and he's, and, and he's going to bring judgment. So it's very important that we that we see that it's going to happen. That judgment is going to happen. Because he says they deceive you with deceptive words. That word means plastic. <laughs> and that's true. Those words, they're very plastic. They, they're not very deep. They're very shallow words that they say. But they entice people with their own lusts, with their own desires. And that's why the health and wealth thing has been so successful over the last 50 years is because Wow, man, I can, be, I can be wealthy, and it's God's will that everybody be wealthy all the time, and it's God's will that everybody be healthy all the time, and, and it's, it's all a self-focus. And so we have to watch out for it. So the importance of being reminded, we need to welcome when we see or hear teachings that are things that we already know, we need to instantly remind ourselves, okay, I need to ask myself, am I currently obeying this? Not if, I, not if I've obeyed it in the past, Am I being it right now? And then also the value of the prophetic word, that it's the ultimate basis for our faith, that prophetic scriptures, those verses, and, and those things are the anchor that anchors our souls. And so he says, heed those things. And then lastly, not to take false teaching uh, not to take it lightly, to take it seriously, and to desire to grow in our walk with the Lord in the sense of knowing his word and, and helping others. 
We may be good, but we may have other people in our lives that aren't good, that aren't biblically grounded, and we need to get in there and help them, help them be grounded. May God help us have everybody in our lives be grounded in his word. Amen? Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and your word. We want to be changed by it. We thank you that we're in the truth. We thank you that you brought us to a family of churches that honors your word, all of it, every verse. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be really grounded in your word and to grow in, in knowledge of you, but also to grow in our obedience to you, Lord. I pray, Lord, if there's any disobedience going on right now, willful disobedience in this room, in the lives of us, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would convict and encourage, and I pray, Lord, that we would be right with you and to serve you with our whole heart, Lord, to give everything to you. You're worthy of all of our lives. Transform us, Lord, by the renewing of our minds through your word. We want to be a holy people for you. You're worthy of that, we know for sure. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.